0: Welcome to episode number five of Colorado TechCast.
1: Do you live in the Colorado area and into technology startups? Want the inside scoop? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Colorado TechCast with your host, Trapper Little.
0: Hey everybody, Trapper here. Colorado TechCast is a podcast focused on technology companies in Colorado. We bring you interviews and stories about all the cool technology happenings in the state. Today, I'm speaking with Jeff Kasmir, co-founder and executive director of Turing School of Software and Design. Jeff was born in Philadelphia and grew up in Washington, D.C., in a rich, melting pot of people and cultures. After graduating from Arizona State with degrees in computer engineering and economics, Jeff took a look at what the software industry had to offer and decided he wanted something with more diversity in thinking and in people. He entered the education industry first as a teacher, then as a founder of a charter middle school. And finally, as a founder of three different software development boot camps, Jeff founded Hungry Academy within Living Social, where upon graduation, all of his grads were quickly picked up by Living Social. Next, in search of a larger base, Jeff moved to Denver in 2013 and started G School in partnership with Galvanize. But after a year with Galvanize, Jeff realized that for-profit education was not for him. So he left and founded Turing, one of the first nonprofit software boot camps. Turing School of Software and Design is a 501c3 corporation. Their seven-month software development program boasts some pretty amazing stats. 75% of graduates finish within seven months, 80% of graduates are employed as full-time developers within six months, and the median starting pay is $75,000 in cities nationwide. Turing believes that status quo is not good enough. Their mission is to unlock human potential by training a diverse, inclusive student body to succeed in high-fulfillment technical careers, Turing's vision is a world powered by technology, where the people building it represent the people using it. They're here to build a movement. Now, let's get started. So, Jeff, tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: See, I uh, was born in Philadelphia, moved out to San Francisco as a as a little baby, uh, moved to D.C. when I was ten. Uh, my parents were lifetime federal workers, uh, and so kind of grew up in the in the D.C. federal government world. For my formative years, went uh, to Arizona State for college, got a degree in computer engineering and one in economics. And by the time I finished college, I was really missing being a part of a multicultural environment, uh, studying engineering. And doing it in Phoenix meant being in a class of predominantly white men like me. And having grown up in D.C. was a real uh, melting pot of, of cultures and backgrounds and even some politics. Uh, and and I, I miss just kind of being in that kind of environment where I looked at the software world. It looked like it was going to be a continuation of my college, not, not a change and decided to do something different. So I joined Teach for America. This was in 2003. I taught middle school for a year, taught high school for four years, and then uh, was on the founding team, kind of co-founded a charter middle school in 2007, and ran that for two years, and then got into adult education at that point. Uh, I tried to do weekend classes and things like, oh, you're a Secretary, come learn some programming to automate parts of your job. Or you're a teacher, come learn programming to automate parts of your job. Turned out no one wanted those things. Uh, No one wanted to pay for it, at least. So that didn't work. I started doing some conference talks, which led to corporate training, which was very profitable and completely soulless and, and being on the road all the time. So I hated that. And then had an opportunity, a friend asked me, if you had really smart people who don't know anything about programming, how long would it take to turn them into job-ready software developers? I said, six months. He said he had budget for five months. And I said, all right, let's do it five months. Uh, So we launched a, a program that would Come to be called like a developer boot camp, but we didn't use that terminology at the time; it didn't really exist. Uh, and it, our, our program was called Hungry Academy, so it was run in DC, inside of Living Social, uh, back in 2012. And ran that; it was unfortunately very effective. Where at the end, Living Social hired all of the students and said, "That was great. We just grew our engineering team from 100 to 124." please don't do it again. We can't afford to bring you on 24 new people six months from now. Uh, so looked at other opportunities, came out to Denver to help, uh, galvanize was just getting started and, and came out to kind of architect and, and run their education program. Uh, moving from a K 12 background, having done some entrepreneurship on my own, uh, I thought that a for profit business world would be a just fine fit for me. Turned out it wasn't, and decided to exit there pretty quickly. So that galvanized for a year, and then decided to start over on my own uh, with a small, small team as a nonprofit in 2014. So we started the Turing School in June of 2014, uh, were awarded a 501c3 nonprofit designation and have been growing in downtown Denver ever since. Uh, This year, we'll graduate about 250 uh, folks through our program. We have about 150 students every day and 30 people on staff. So now I'm executive director and try and keep all the wheels turning.
0: So you have a background in computer science. Yep. Got an education, decided to kind of blend the technology background with education and learn some things along the way and decided to strike out on your own. Is that it?
1: Yeah, uh, pretty, pretty much it. I, I tried to look at, you know, what could I do that other people weren't able or weren't willing to do? And I think bringing the understandings of both tech and education together, um, you, you find tech people who are interested in education and education people who are interested in tech, but there are very few people that have actual experience with both of them. Uh, so I thought I could... I can do that in a compelling way and, uh, you know, open some doors for students to make really dramatic changes in their lives. And it's proven out now. it's got about 500 alums uh, out there in the workforce living pretty fancy lives now.
0: Right. Are those 500 people here in Denver or do they come here to Turing and graduate and then go
1: elsewhere? Yeah. It's uh, of current alums, it's probably, I would say, 300 are in the greater Colorado ecosystem uh, and 200 are outside the state. And that's gradually, it it used to be the case that a majority of students would leave Colorado after the program. Now, about 85% would like to stay if they find a job here, uh, but they're going to go where they have to for a job. So it's interesting with the larger ecosystem here, right, that there's a big story of of software development, software demand for software developers, and how no one can hire software developers, and, oh, we can't get software developers. I have all these software developers who want to stay, and unfortunately, uh, some of them leave the state just because the job. The jobs aren't open to them here.
0: Mm-hmm. You guys are different than a college, right? You're a tech boot camp where you come and you learn specific tactical skills that are currently in demand by employers, right?
1: Yeah. So I, I think of us as more similar to a college than different. Uh, you know, I, I think for a while the narrative in our industry was college is stupid. No one should ever go to college. We're disrupting college. And I think that's really dumb. Uh, college to me, can provide a lot of value. And yes, I think the expense of many colleges has gotten out of control, uh, but there's still a lot of good work uh, happening in college. The flaw in the system to me is that typical programs in colleges try and both be academic inquiry and job prep, and you can't do both of those jobs really well. Uh, what I hope we see is like across this century, a resurgence in job skill training that allows college to focus where I think it's best on academic inquiry, personal growth, and kind of maturation into adulthood, and then separately handle job skill training. And that's what I'd like to see for my own kids. I would love for them to go to college. And if you want to study Greek mythology, like go do it. And don't worry about a job. And then after you graduate, now go get skills specific to a job you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Turing tries to do in the second half.
0: So pick up the liberal arts in the first half and then uh, more skills-based training in the second half, right?
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I think in a lot of colleges, we see that separation informally. There are programs like mine, a uh, typical computer science program or computer engineering program, where what you're studying is closer to the job skills end of the spectrum. And then you have uh, political science, right? That's very much on the academic inquiry uh, end of the spectrum. And so then folks graduate from schools with the same name on the top of the diploma, but some of them are prepared for jobs, some of them aren't. And now we kind of cast dispersions on, you know, why did you study that thing that didn't even get you ready for a job that was so dumb? And that's unfortunate, right? Because there is a lot of value in those studies. There's so much to to learn. And, and I hope that by promoting vocational education, we can also lift traditional higher ed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I've worked with more marketing people who are in IT than I have actual computer science people, you know, over the course of <laughs> my career. Which is strange, right? Yeah. You think, think marketing is all business, but it's not when you think about it. It's, it's solving problems, right? It's identifying opportunities sure. and solving problems. And that's a lot of what, what we in technology do, right? So I, I think it's an interesting yeah. fix.
1: If you were to interview the tech teams of most tech companies, in my experience at least, most tech companies where the engineering team is less than 100 people, Uh, you'll find that fewer than 50% of them have computer science degrees. That uh, a majority, you know, my my friend who was VP of Engineering at Living Social who helped me start Hungry Academy, his uh, degree was in saxophone performance. And no one ever said, like, how dare you be a CTO without a computer science degree? Like, it's just once you have experience in the industry, if you know what you're doing, your credentials really don't matter, and and that's the the promise and also kind of the curse of the industry is this uh, belief that it's a it's a meritocracy. If you can do the job, you you can get the job, and that's perhaps more true than it is in some other industries. But it's not strictly true. Like there, there's a lot of um, politics and and cultural biases and other kind of inefficiencies in the system still
0: so when you decided to form turing you were living in denver working at galvanize
1: yeah and you know kind of looking at while during that year at galvanize the market for for programs like ours the boot camp market was growing at an incredible pace uh, when we set up turing excuse me when we set up hungry academy back in 2012 there were two other programs in the country kind of doing similar things that were also just getting started by the time galvanize was up and running, there were like a hundred programs across the country or or closing in on a hundred. And so the competitive landscape was very, very different. Uh, When we decided to wrap it up at galvanize, I, I was, I was worried a bit at myself not having a big network in Denver and Colorado. Uh, what would the reception be if I was kind of out out on my own? Would it be uh, poisoned water, where like people weren't interested in dealing with me, dealing with us, or could it could it still be home? Uh, what other markets had a similar viability for job prospects and uh, incoming students to be recruited and so forth. And what I arrived at in my research was that Denver and Austin were in pretty similar places for the availability uh, of, of incoming students, like mostly folks who either have college degrees or, or uh, did some college but are looking to make a career change, and technical employers looking for more developers. So then coming down to Denver and Austin, it was basically, we're already here, so why move to Austin? Let's go. <laughs> here, here we are in Denver. And um, yeah, it's been an interesting, an interesting journey, like professionally and personally across, I've been in Denver now
0: four years. So this is a real passion of yours. I mean, you've got at least a decade of educational experience, right? And then you... You decided yeah. that for profit just wasn't working out, so you decided to uh, change the game, right?
1: The way I think about it is, uh, if you almost, if you imagine, my wife and I were just talking about the. Do you remember the biosphere in in Arizona? I, I don't think anyone knows if that is or isn't still a thing, but. I, I conceive of education in, in kind of a self-contained environment like that. And when you have investors, when you run a for-profit, investors are not in it for the fund, right? And they're not really in it for the social mission. They're in it because they want to get paid back what they put in and typically five to 10 X more than what they put in. And so when you have this educational ecosystem, I think of money as kind of the oxygen and students put some in and investors want to take it out. And the necessary flaw of for-profit education in my mind is that investors need to get paid. And if they weren't getting paid, that money could be spent on students. So by structural model, you are taking oxygen away from your students and maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe you're making so much money that it's not really, you know, you're not suffocating your students, but from what I've seen in the world, for-profit education is not a place I want to spend my life. And, you know, the, the one way I look at it with people in the higher ed sphere is like, tell me, uh, you know, the for-profit college you'd be excited for your kids to go to? And the answer is usually, uh, uh, like, I appreciate that there are for-profit, I, I think our, our big systems, our University of Phoenixes of the world, they provide opportunities to some students who otherwise don't have opportunity. And that's great. For the other 90% of their students, uh, I don't feel... I don't feel like those for profit institutions are the best place for them to learn or, or the best um, place for them to be successful, right? And we've seen the Department of Education and Department of Labor like cracking down on traditional higher ed schools, uh, traditional for profit higher ed schools in the last couple of years because the results that students find, the employability, the time to hire, it just doesn't match what they advertise. Uh, now in our space, in the boot camp space, we're getting close to seeing the same thing where there's a lot more skepticism in the claims of, you know, come do this program for six weeks. And afterwards everyone gets paid a bajillion dollars and you get hired in like two days and the numbers just don't, real life doesn't back that up. You know, we've always tried to be really transparent with our stats and outcomes and so forth. It's legitimately complicated how you, uh, which students you choose to include and which students you don't, and what timelines are acceptable. You, you can you can tell a lot of different stories with the same numbers, but in the end, I think a for-profit uh, education, uh, a for-profit institution, exists to deliver value to shareholders. A nonprofit organization can exist with the always number one of delivering value to the students. And so that to me is like a goal worth pursuing.
0: You mentioned transparency. I know you guys are doing a lot of interesting things with how transparent you are, right, with uh, student outcomes or student placements, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we've um, we started, so there's a, a program in New York called the Flatiron School uh, that in 2013, I believe, published the first really comprehensive report in the industry on on data and outcomes and students coming in and students coming out. And so once Turing was up and running and we had some actual data to report, uh, my mandate to the staff was, let's follow Flatiron's example and do that, and then also kind of grow from there uh, and see what other stats we think are interesting to look at, right? So some of the things I was curious about were, okay, we uh, we know we have X percent female students if we compare their graduation rate to the overall student graduation rate, what do we see? What about students of color? What about veterans? What about students who pay up front versus students who use a deferment plan and pay later? And, and those kinds of analyses, I think, in a, in a for-profit world, there's very little incentive to do that because you might not like the answers you find. For us, we're free to do those investigations because – for the most part, we don't have to answer to anyone except the students. So if, if we find some flaws or we find some trends that are encouraging, or we find trends that are discouraging, we either try and amplify the good ones or try and fix the bad ones. And it's okay to have a straightforward conversation about that. You know, like I'm, I'm comfortable with saying about eight to 10% of our students at any given time are veterans of our veteran students, I don't think we are adequately serving all of them. It tends to be that half of them are very successful and half of them struggle profoundly. There's not really a middle ground and that's a problem that needs to be worked on. I don't think we get better at that by pretending it's not there or not telling anybody about it. Right. The, of course, as a nonprofit, I like to talk about it with a little hope that somebody goes like, Hey, what if you had a, Full-time mental health support for those students. I'd pay for that. Like, okay, great, thanks, foundation. Uh, we would that would be amazing. You know, <laughs> let's do it and, and see if that has an impact on the numbers. Um, and, and, and trying different strategies like those. I think uh, you know, there's the the saying like sunshine is the best disinfectant. And I think by being transparent and open with our successes and our flaws, I mean our failures then we have a chance of doing better over time. Uh, the more we allow those things to get swept under the rug or hidden or whatever, there's going to grow and fester. And that's just bad for everyone.
0: You know, I worked for a for-profit college when I first moved back to Denver and I actually graduated from that same school. It was bizarre because I started in, I started in 99 and I, you know, I saw the thing that the recruiter came out to our high school and pitched us, and it looked it looked great. I showed up in Denver, and it's in. I always joke, but it's true. It was in between a dry cleaner and a Mexican restaurant, so it was fine if you needed to get your laundry done and and you needed to get some food, right? But the school was not what it was built out at being. Yep. And uh, you know, I just cu- kind of felt jaded all along, but no other school was providing the technology education that I wanted. Uh, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to make a career in technology, but I didn't see that a computer science degree well first of all my math grades were terrible so there, there was no college that was going to accept me into their their computer science program mm-hmm. but you know this school provided a provided an opportunity to get a tech education but being you know being a product of that as well as working there you know a few years down the road it was just interesting to see the mentality that was that permeated the school right it was very much profit-centered. There was a lot of, you know, incentive to get students in the door and make sure they stayed in for the, you know, the the three months or however long it took for the school to get, you know, the government check. And then after that, the students were kind of left, left flounder. Yeah. It seems like touring is almost 180 degrees different than that, where you're providing the framework and the education or the framework and the support for your students, their entire education.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think one thing I always try and highlight with flawed education or for profits or whatever, there are a lot of people trying to do the right thing. And and I'm sure it was your experience like being on staff that there are a lot of teachers like trying to be great teachers and trying to deliver great outcomes for their students. The problem is that the core of the organizational structure is, is not about academic success, right? Or, and it's not about, Uh, job outcomes. It's about perpetuating the organization, making the organization bigger, generating higher revenue, reducing costs, increasing profit. And yeah, so for us, like we don't have, we don't have anybody to answer to. Um, The state, we're we're regulated by a state agency that is essentially more of a, it's a consumer protection organization more than it is uh, academic quality or anything like that. So as long as we're not generating complaints to them, they don't really care too much about what we do. And we're just able to focus on, okay, what do we think the market needs? Well, first question is, what does the market say it needs? Then try and figure out what does the market actually need and then figure out if we can deliver that and then see if students are interested in being a part of it. And if all those pieces line up, then we're good to go. You know? and, and that's been the fun thing for us is just getting to experiment and tweak and change. And, and uh, somebody, I was talking with somebody who does, uh, who, who teaches at a, at a traditional four-year school and we were talking about the process of revising curriculum. And they were saying that to change chunks of their curriculum is typically like a two plus year process. And they're asking, what does it look like? You know, if I'm teaching at Turing and I want to change something that I'm teaching, what do I do? And I felt bad that the answer is, you do you just change it. Like you just make you go into GitHub and you just change what it says in the file. And so we change our lesson plans every day. Uh, our, our lesson plans repo has like new new lessons or old things are getting. Kind of resuscitated, revised, or or sometimes getting put out to pasture, uh, and new things coming in, and and so our, our curriculum just changes at an incredibly high pace. Um, we it allows us to be responsive to the industry, but I uh, an opinion I guess I don't share a whole lot, but I hold strongly is the industry really doesn't know what it's doing. Like the industry, there is an idea, a reasonable idea that like talk to employers, find out what they want, and then teach that. But the reality is employers don't know what they want. Uh, you know, the way our job listings and technical fields are done is very flawed. The way our interview process is done is flawed in, in my eyes. Uh, and so I don't really trust employers to know what they want. I see us as in a little bit more of a, a slightly prescriptive role where it's like, okay, we're going to, give you people who look like what you think you want, but I'm gonna actually equip them with the skills that they need to be successful and you'll thank us later.
0: How do you know what employers are looking for the technical, or the technical skills that their employees need?
1: Yeah. Um, you know there's there's the impression in the in the market that skills change so quickly. And how can you even teach a curriculum when six months from now there will be new JavaScript frameworks and new this and new that. And that's a cute illusion, but I, I just think it's really fundamentally false. Uh, when we look at the industry, things don't change nearly as quickly as everyone likes to tell themselves they do. Uh, there's a lot of incentive to create a certain fear in the ecosystem that change happens so quickly. Uh, I think that's primarily driven by investors and venture capital, which says like, if you don't grow huge in the next six months, you're going to be dead. And the only way you can grow huge that quickly is to take our hundred million dollars and turn it into a billion dollars, you know, and that's essentially their whole business model. When you look at the actual technology, to me, the most interesting computer science happening, right now is in uh, you know, essentially like multi-process architectures, parallel computing, that kind of stuff, which we're, we're just now really starting to apply ideas that were built for the telephone system in the 60s and 70s. So the forefront, in my eyes, like the forefront of computer science now is 40- or 50-year-old technology. So how fast things move in six months is it's an illusion it's a game like a circus act that to create this impression that everything moves so fast the reality is the things that someone needs to get a, a good development job today are pretty much the same as they needed two years ago five years ago and ten years ago uh, it's process more than it is content and and the misunderstanding is that people believe it's content. I have to know this framework. I have to know this language, uh, or be familiar with these APIs or whatever it is. The reality is that being a software engineer, being a good software engineer is 85% process, 15% knowledge, you know, 15% content knowledge. So if you, okay, if you, if you got an undergrad degree in Java, uh, And will you look at job listings and see that, wow, there's maybe a lot of Python jobs or a lot of .NET jobs. I can't get those jobs. Uh, That's not exactly true. Like what, if, if you've learned good processes, then you can reapply those to different content areas for relatively low uh, frictional cost as compared to the original battles to like build your understanding and appreciation of those processes. So yeah, we teach one program that's Ruby and Rails. We teach another program that's JavaScript and React and HTML and CSS. The content of them looks totally different on paper, but it's actually almost the same program. It's just spoken with a little bit different accent. It's all about the both programs are about you know how do we understand uh, organizing data? How do we build structures? How do we build agile software processes and execute them in ways that make sense? How do we deliver a product that uh, you know, makes sense to a user and is usable and, and, and brings them value? And if you do that with JavaScript or you do it with Python or you do it with .NET or you do it with Ruby, who cares? Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think employers get it exactly wrong. If you look at the majority of job listings, what they are is, uh, I call it the vomit list, which is just a bullet list of the technologies we happen to use at this moment. And that's the least important thing about the candidate or the job. Uh, if, if you have a, a candidate and a team that are good at process, that's, that's the important thing. And whether they're good at Python or they're good at some other language, uh, to me matters very little. So that's how we can train people for jobs better than the jobs know how to ask for them because they ask for content and we teach process.
0: Yeah, get get a strong foundation and it doesn't matter yeah. what tool you're using. There's always a new tool but the processes and the concepts are, I mean, they've been around since the beginning of, of uh, Punch Cards, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So the olden how do you... Days. The, yeah, the olden days, right? In an industry that's, uh, you know, less than 100 years old. Right. <laughs> so how do you how do you convince employers of that?
1: Yeah, it's hard. Um, you know, and there's, there's a bit of a misunderstanding in the market, which is to see that companies want to hire software developers. We train software developers. Therefore, it should all be easy. Well, the, the big hump in the middle is that every employer wants to hire people with five to 10 years experience. And very few of them want to hire people with zero to two years experience. And that's the, the toughest uh, thing for us. It's also tough for college grads in general to get employed, you know? So it's not at all a unique problem to tech or unique to vocational training. One of the biggest challenges is that engineering positions are very high leverage jobs. And if you're not good at your job, in in some industries, if you're not good at your job, the job just doesn't get done and somebody else has to do it or you get fired and replaced or whatever it is in a software engineering position, a high leverage job. If you do a bad job, you actually bring down the work of everyone around you. So not only are we not making enough progress, but we're actually uh, losing pace because you're screwing everything up. And for that reason, it is reasonable, fair, that companies are a little more risk-averse when hiring software developers. They would prefer to have someone where they've been, been uh, house-trained at some other company. right? You've got that at least two years' experience, preferably four or six. So the challenge for us is to kind of help crack the door open and get companies to consider taking the risk on a junior developer, on a developer without professional experience. That is a really hard thing to do. Um, Often boils down to companies who are willing to just kind of roll the dice and say like, ah, this is risky. Let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. Sometimes they're willing to do that because uh, they have... The initiatives around diversity or in maybe they're interested, just uh, like kind of organizationally interested in bringing in uh, people new to the industry or so forth. But day one, is a junior developer worth their weight worth their on day one? No, not possible. Uh, the question is how steep is their value ramp after they start? And what we see is that it takes about three months is the break-even point for a Turing grad where they can really earn their, their wage at that point. They can, they can deliver as much as a consultant getting paid that money or something. And after three months is when they start to become essentially a profit center where they're doing high-leverage work, they're doing it effectively, and they're delivering more value than they're consuming in their Uh, both their salary and their load that they put on other developers, right? And asking questions and needing feedback and review and so forth. So for employers, what that typically means is that we see a very high rate about 60, I think it's right now 65% of graduates get hired at companies that have previously hired a graduate, which is number one, a tremendous vote of confidence, which we like, um, but number two, it shows that they understand, like, there's a, a market opportunity in hiring junior people. It's kind of like a sports team building through the draft or building through free agency. Like, yeah, the, 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 the player with five years experience and is in the prime of their career looks great. They're also incredibly expensive. And if you can play the draft well, uh, maybe you can draft the next Steph Curry. Uh, who becomes the, the the person you build the franchise around, or you might just draft some really good players uh, that provide you a tremendous amount of value. and that's that's what I think we're able to deliver.
0: So how's the Colorado tech community aided in your uh, in your uh, mission to do that?
1: Yeah, it's been huge. Um, I think people say it uh, frequently, but it, it's just incredibly true that uh, I feel like every door is open you know, and, and, coming out of the, uh, Brad Feld world, the ideas of like give first and so forth. That's totally been my experience where, as I said before, like I, I was worried that the doors will be locked and people not interested in talking to me and talking to us. And it's been completely the opposite, just incredibly supportive. Uh, most people who I reach out to, just say like, Hey, can we get a coffee and, and chat and learn about what you're doing and tell you about what we're doing? Um, four times out of five it's a yes and and it happens in the next week or two and Mm -hmm. just just been a really great network to be a part of and you know dc is a very special place to me it's like where but it's a culture where everyone is very clearly looking out for number one, right? Like you're you're looking for the next step to get the next place up. Like uh, I sometimes joke about the documentary House of Cards, like it is uh, it's not not far from the truth. Where in not Denver, not fictionalized
0: much at all, huh?
1: Yeah, uh, in Denver. I feel like there's a feeling of kind of a shared prosperity, right, of leaning on one another, connecting with one another, referring people work in jobs and employees and all that because it lifts everyone up. And uh, it's, it's just been, honestly, like an incredible, unbelievable place for us to grow as a company and, and grow as
0: individuals. So being new to Denver at the time... I think you said you moved here in 2014, right?
1: Uh, um, 20, yeah, 13.
0: So how did you go about building that network up to to enable you to be successful now?
1: One brick at a time. Uh, you know, I, I think I really enjoy people. And I think when you talk to people, and number one, I like to ask a lot of questions, uh, unlike this interview at the moment. But uh, typically I ask more questions than I answer. And I like to ask people questions so I can learn about them, learn about their problems and start to figure out like, how can I help them over some of these hurdles? And what is very easy to see in the the business world is if you help someone solve a problem, they remember that for a very long time. So there are just, you know, I look at like our alumni and I, I get to play a part in a lot of their job hunts and so forth. And they're so thankful for it. And they repay that or they demonstrate that thanks by coming back and being mentors and helping coach students on their own uh, interviewing skills and just continuing to be super highly engaged uh, in the same way. Our, our technical mentors, friends from the community or hiring companies and they're, they've just always been super supportive and like we try and give to them and knowing that like they'll give to us somewhere down the road. So how do we, You know, I think about little opportunities we have when when companies are doing work that we think is really neat, like have them come in and show it off to the students and get the students excited and hopefully find the next great employee to help keep building that thing, you know, or trying to be supportive of, um, you were talking earlier about like the commons on Champa and trying to make sure that whenever they need speakers for something like, boom, we, we supply the people or they have an event, try and play a part, be supportive. And it's just that rising tide lifts all boats thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think the other part that took me a while to understand was being willing to ask people for things that we needed and nobody likes to like beating around the bush. Right. And so just being clear with folks where it's like, Hey, I'd love to get coffee and talk to you about X. Like you were successful doing this thing. We want to do a similar thing. I'd love to learn how you did it then people tend to be super happy, willing, able to like share and so forth. People get nervous when it's just like, let's chat about things, you know, like, all right, what's your, what's your motivation here? So it kind of fits back into the being transparent, you know? And, and I like that. I think here, uh, I, I love people who are, who are running small businesses because it's often we, we do get together for that coffee and within the first 10 minutes, We've each listed off like, here are the top five problems with my business. And then they're like, those are my top five problems. Oh my God. Like I'm not alone out in the world here. Like we're other people are concerned about these same things because the, the majority of like the entrepreneurship community is everything's great. Oh yeah. We're working super hard, but Oh, so-and-so's crushing it. so and so is killing it. I'm like, yeah, no, not really like under the hood you're riddled with fear and uncertainty and doubt and like there are these major problems and icebergs coming to sink you and let's like talk about that stuff because then we might find ways to fix it if instead it's all like pats on the back and hype about how great everything is like that that doesn't really help us get anywhere and so I think uh, the, the community here has been like really supportive and engaged in that way.
0: So, do you have any plans to expand outside of Colorado?
1: I like to tell people that that will think about it after ten years, and probably after ten years, the answer will be no. Um, my attitude on it is, uh, where has MIT expanded? like my my in-laws are in Boston. I would not want to live in Boston, not just for them, but just I find Boston to be an unfortunate place. Uh, but if I if it was the right move for me to go to grad school at MIT, I want to go like, Oh, how come MIT can't be down the street? You know, it's like you, you go to the place. Uh, if if it's that level of quality, uh, you, you go to the place. So for us, we'll continue to grow here in Denver. And if people come here and love Denver and want to stay great, if they're already here, even better. Uh, and if they want to come and then leave afterwards, that's fine by me. but, we get so much benefit from the critical mass of being all in one space and having, you know, I I love that I can't walk more than a couple blocks in Lodo without running into alumni on the street and mentors and other friends from the community and so forth. And it's like, we're all right here. So I see our growth. We're right now in the basement, in the windowless basement uh, down here. And one day I hope to have a floor of the building that has windows and then get another floor with windows. And at the point where this building's full and and we've got all 18 stories or whatever it is, then maybe we'll expand across the street. Uh, But expanding to Austin or SF or Seattle, uh, the only way we would do that is if it was an unbelievable opportunity for students. If Google.org came and said, Hey, uh, You know, you have 35% female students. What if you ran a program with 100% female students and we paid for the entire thing, and here's a $500 million check, but we want you to do it in X place? Well, we're going to X place. Like that, (laughs) whatever it is, wherever it is, we're going. Uh, But short of some unbelievable support like that, uh, we'll be here forever. And, And that was one of our guiding questions. In, in the early days was how do you build an organization that lasts 100 years? And that's an absurd question in technology, right? And where everyone's trying to build things and exit as soon as possible and so you can build the next thing and exit that one. And we were never building a tech company. We're building an education company, right? So how, like, how did MIT start? How did Stanford start? Some stubborn people decided to work hard they probably got a little bit lucky and kept it going for a long time. And now we take it for granted as like these great institutions. Uh, that's, I think, in 2117. I hope that people take Turing for granted.
0: Well, I hope to see you guys here. Um, and I think you're in an interesting time as well as an interesting place for this because we had the tech boom back in the you know late 90s, early 2000s, and people were just throwing money at problems trying to solve them, right? But then as people realize that giving stuff away isn't a very good business model, right? Like you can't always do this and, and stay stay in profit.
1: Yeah, it's funny. It took a long time to learn that.
0: You know, basic uh, basic business school would teach you that, right? Now we're seeing a resurgence of technology and it's more, it's more um, focused, right? It's not just throwing money at problems to see if technology will solve it. It's finding innovative ways to use technology to solve problems that have always existed. We've just been either these economies of scale haven't allowed us to address those with with tech yet, or we just haven't moved in that market. So, yep. and with all the technology growth here, I think you guys are in a really interesting position to help shape a lot of you know a lot of those future outcomes of those companies.
1: It's interesting from that that medium term impact. What does it mean? You know, and we're. We're not glory-seeking as an organization. We're just here to like do the work for the students. But when you look at it on that state scale or even the national scale, it's okay. We're going to graduate 250 job-ready software developers every year. That's more than Mines, CU, DU, Colorado State put together. So when it comes to software developers, we're the most significant source of talent in the state, in the region. And if you compare against the MITs and Stanfords and so forth, they're at about if you roll together computer engineering, software engineering, computer science, et cetera, they graduate about four hundred people a year. So it's it's on the same we're in the same order of magnitude, right? Um, as like the preeminent institutions in the country. The question is like will the market care? And can nobody nobody in whatever, the whole country, uh, but especially in Massachusetts, you don't have to explain what MIT does, right? If, if you have that MIT engineering degree, like you're getting the job, it doesn't really matter what the job is. And I hope that one day doors will open to our alums in, in that same way. And I think as one company at a time learns about that leverage, about the uh, the, the power, the value in these folks that that, that will germinate, that'll, that'll like really take hold.
0: I wish you guys luck on that. I think it's a very Herculean effort.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's easy to forget that like this industry or this niche of the industry is five years old and I am not a patient person, Uh, you know, so right now our median time to hire is 45 days. I want it to be zero days. And it is frustrating to me that it's not zero days right now. And then once in a while, I try and remind myself like, okay, three years ago, this didn't exist. Two years ago, there were like a couple dozen graduates, like some things take time, like cracking open all these doors, building all these relationships, like it takes time, it takes time. But also, I'd like it to be done right now. So let's, <laughs> let's keep working and, and make it happen right now.
0: So how can people find more out about Turing?
1: Yeah, uh, so we've got the website is turing.io. It's, uh, a lot of good information on it. Um, I love for people to see the space. I, I think there's no better way to understand it than to, than to walk around down here in the basement. Um, one of the best ways to do that is uh, it, on the student side is the, we run these try turing or tri-coding events. Uh, about every two weeks, we run a weekend workshop for people who are curious just to see like is programming a thing I want to pursue. Uh, so we do a one or two day class. Uh, we price it pretty cheap where we really are just trying to make sure people show up. Uh, I think they're, they're typically either 25 or 50 bucks and about half our students, uh, come from those classes now. So that's a great way on the uh, potential student side on the employer side. Uh, folks can reach out to me and, uh, shoot me an email and I'm about to talk to them about finding the right graduates to hire for their company.
0: Jeff, is there anything else you want to touch on that we haven't, uh, haven't talked about yet?
1: I think the important idea, you know, or or, or thing that's really important to me is that as a culture, as a country, we start to move from the idea of vocational tech being a last chance to being a great option, you know? And I think, programming teaching programming in a short period that's that's one of the ways but i hope that we see programs like ours spring up in accounting and marketing and like other jobs that have concrete skills where you could say like this person is prepared to execute this job because our, our labor market is not real fair right now you know there is not a tremendous amount of opportunity until you have experience in the thing. And so the more we can build on ramps and pathways, like if if you want to be frustrated about our national politics right now, I'm frustrated, I'm pissed off. Why do we have this situation? Because we're not telling a story of collective prosperity. And I think the way that we tell somebody, that we help somebody in Greeley, develop a strong local economy is through job skills training, Pueblo job skills training. Like there are jobs for people to do if they have the right training. And so this is not just about teaching programming. I don't actually care anything about programming. I care about economic empowerment. And so I see what we're doing as like a part of a larger movement to figure out like, how do we build the future prosperity of the country? So If people are into that, I hope they uh, find a way to to play a part in the story.
0: I had a really good time with Jeff talking about Turing and his vision for what technology education could be. Drop me a line and let me know what you think. My email address is trapper at coloradotechcast.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at CO TechCast.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Colorado TechCast with your host, Trapper Little. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you leave a review. And for more great content and to stay up today, visit ColoradoTechCast.com or on Twitter at CotechCast. TechCast. We'll catch you next time on the Colorado TechCast.